What's Wrong with Utopias? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Harrigan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with James Harrigan. James is senior editor at AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast. James was previously the dean of the American University of Iraq Sulaimani and later served as director of academic programs at the Institute for Humane Studies and Strata, where he was also a senior research fellow. James has written extensively for the popular press as well, with articles appearing in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, US News and World Report, and a host of other outlets. He is also the co-author of Cooperation and Coercion. His current work and interests focus on the intersections between political economy, public policy, and political philosophy. James, welcome back to The Curious Task, and it's great to be doing this in person again. It is great to be doing this in person. It's great to be back. What's this, time number three? I think this is time number three. First time was uh, actually in Montreal, live recording. Second time was over Zoom, pandemic, Pandemic dark eras, and now we're back just Coincidentally, in Montreal. Back again. in three dimensions. I come to Montreal every two years, almost exactly, and every time I do, the first thing I want to do is see you guys. There you go. Awesome. Well, we're, of course, very happy to have you on. And James, as you well know, we base each episode on a theme and a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today and what we're going to be exploring is, what's wrong with utopias? Of course, we'll be exploring your thoughts on utopian thinking and, of course, definitely hearing what you have to say about it. I'd like to start actually with a uh, paper that you recently co-authored. Um, we're not going to get into all the details and the finer points, but I did want to you know, throw it over to you so you can outline at a high level what was going on in there, uh, what it explores, and we can frame our conversation with that. So the paper's called John Maynard Keynes, H.G. Wells, and a Problematic Utopia. So give us the rundown. What was that all about? Well, you know, you, you start looking at Keynes the way that... that people do. Um, he, he's become so important to economic thought, whether you think he should be important or not, it's another question. Entirely. Right. But he defines, I think, in many ways, what, what we do economically. So you you start digging a little bit into Keynesian thought, right, because it's not as obvious as it might first appear to be. And there's a lot more than just the general theory. And when uh, Phil Magnus and I started digging in, um, we noticed something that was, I think, deeply unfortunate. I think that would be the nicest way I can put it. And it's this essay, and and I'll give you a link to the essay so you can include it in your show notes if Mm -hmm. people want to go read it for themselves. I'm not just making shit up here. Um, Not that I'm above that sort of thing, but I'm not doing it here. Um, When you you take a look at, at Keynes and what he's aiming for into the future, you find out that population control is actually central to his thought. And it's not just control, it's actually eugenics. He wants a certain kind of people populating the earth, and he wants them in limited numbers. And who has to go? Who's not included in the great view of this wonderful new future that we're all, dare I say, progressing towards? Mm -hmm. And the answers are always the same, right? It's always the same. It's, It's those unwanted black and brown people. And he says it in print. You can read it for yourselves. Um, And you realize that if his vision of a utopian society hinges on this kind of of eugenic thought, 
and his buddy H.G. Wells is in for the ride too. People don't don't realize just how awful a human being H.G. Wells was. Mm. Um, what are we supposed to think about that? Right? When, when, when you really take a step back, is is this the future that we really want? Is this the future anybody should really want? And you start asking some hard questions about utopian thought more broadly. Right. And, and, and what the hell is it? Right? Why is it that when people think about politics, and I'm going to make two assertions here in, in, in the space of our conversation, and this is the first one. When people think about politics, they're generally speaking and broadly speaking utopian in their orientation. They think that if we just pull this lever and flip that switch, you know, the, the typical way that statists approach the political process. Right? Mm-hmm. If we just do these things, they reduce everything to a technical problem. Um, and if we do these technical things, then the output will be perfect human living. Right. Uh, all right. Let, let's indulge that for a second, shall we? Where's the example of that ever coming close to working? Give me, give me your top three. And, of course, everybody's going to sit there button-lipped because there is no top three. There is no u- top three utopia. Of course there's not. And, and utopia, the word itself, what does it mean? It means no place. Mm. Right? That's what, it right. Means. That's what it means. So the people who started down this road thinking about these sorts of things knew that it, it was a mental exercise. Right? It was... It was an attempt to figure out what the limitations of this kind of thinking might be and, and what we might be able to accomplish in a best-case scenario. Right? And the, the two great examples that come to mind almost immediately are Thomas More's Utopia and Plato's Republic. Right? And if you've read either of these, and a lot more people have read Plato's Republic than More's Utopia, so we're going to kind of toss more off to the side here. But if you want to take a good long look at more, it's going to fit all the same things that I'm going to say about Plato's Republic. So mm-hmm. get, get a look if that's your thing. I'm not making this up either. Right? We're, we're really looking at a couple of the world's greatest thinkers, humanity's greatest minds, and they're approaching this idea of a utopia with great trepidation. They're they're very aware that this is never going to happen. And as a matter of fact, the harder you try to make it happen, the worse off your, your results are going to be for human beings. So Plato's Republic, how does it start? Socrates and a group of relatively young men, and that's important, right? Mm. Young men think this way. Right. Old, old men don't, but there's one old man who does, this special guy, Socrates. They say, well, what is justice? And what do you know? They, they can't really answer that question. And, and you can't either. It's a hard question. And that's, that's the, the point, right? But, but here's the real point. Even though you can't define justice to anyone's satisfaction, and I could poke a hole right in the middle of any definition of justice that anybody gave. I've been doing this for years. It's not hard. Having said that, every single person has a pretty good idea about the content of justice. Mm. And you know what? Children do, too. You see it everywhere children are. You see a keen understanding of justice. How do you know? On the playground, play will stop, and they'll say, that's not fair. Right. And if you listen to the arguments they make, simple though they may be, 
the content of those arguments is always, generally speaking, right on point with justice. Right. And okay, so none of us can define justice, but even children know what it is. Mm-hmm. That's a very strange set of circumstances. Right. But I'm I'm actually kind of cool with that. That sounds wonderful to me. Okay. So now we've got something to work with. And these young men with Socrates, they say, well, uh, I don't know what justice is. Can't really define it. But Socrates says, here's an idea. Let's create a city in speech. And as we describe the city, attributes of justice will come flying out in every direction, and then we'll know what justice is. But that's not crazy or unreasonable. And if that's right, utopian thinking might not be unreasonable either. Because if we can define justice to everybody's satisfaction, then we can implement it. And that that's where utopian thinking comes from. Right. The, right. That's the... That's it. That's the genesis of utopian thought. Mm-hmm. And, and when we get back to our friend Keynes, which we start at the beginning, and as he went through that overview there, so it, just to dig a little deeper into what drives sort of how you end up at eugenics, I mean, we started with eugenics, and I think it's very important people go look into that and what, what he was talking about there. But, I mean, eugenics itself is, is bad in and of itself, well, but your whole point is that what gets you to these types of conclusions is a starting point. That's so, right. And, and when you explored his starting points, what were the kind of... I know you'll have to paraphrase, and we don't have it right in front of us. What were the kinds of things he was thinking about beyond, as you highlighted, that he highlighted, well, sure. supposedly black and brown people and, were and, his problem, right? And I want to get this on the table, too, right. because the point you're making is exactly the right one. To, to get grounded with, right? Um, but eugenics appears in Plato's Republic too. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Right. 2,500 years ago, in an attempt to figure out what justice is, they right. ended up there. Right. Um, of course, when they ended up there, that was Plato telling you, you don't want this society. Right. For Keynes, it's a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. And, and why? And he's falling into the Malthusian trap in, in his analysis, right? He's, he's really making the case that in a world of limited resources, we really have to watch what, what we allow. And notice the words that mm-hmm. I attribute to him, right? I don't speak using those mm-hmm. words. You don't allow people to breed. People breed. That's their choice. That's a free choice that rational free people make whenever they think it's time. Right. Um, but for Keynes, that's something that has to be controlled centrally. And right from the start, that line of reasoning, the, Im- imputing the ability to do that to the state is astonishing. Right. right? And that's way too much. And yet it's central to his thought because if we don't do that – then we will run out of resources and everybody's quality of life, everybody who's alive, will be diminished. So really the trick for Keynes is to make sure there are fewer people and that because there are fewer people, we will all share in the resources more. And because of that, we'll all have a higher quality of, mm-hmm. of, of, of life. And then, then he goes that one step beyond, right? He's already gone too far, right? This is already repugnant to the idea of human freedom. Right. But then he says, and isn't it true that some kinds of people are just more industrious and better than other kinds? And don't we really want to have them? And really what he's describing are, not surprisingly, white Englishmen of the 20th century. Right. That's, you know, 
when you get this kind of, of right. reasoning, we, we, we know where we're heading. Right. And, <laughs> and when you get this kind of reasoning, and this is true of end state reasoning with Hegel and Marx and even Fukuyama, right? They, they always imagine the end state of the state they happen to be in. So too, when people imagine the best people, and I'm, I'm throwing up the air quotes, nobody on, on, air, on the end of the podcast can see them, right? but I think you can hear them in my voice. Um, when we imagine the best people, we imagine the best people of our own kind. Right. And there's a lot of this kind of thinking when human beings start saying dopey shit. Right. And, and okay, I get it. Um, but when eugenics is the next step, right, when you decide, okay, we don't want that kind of person, how do we not get that kind of person? No, now, now you're into very dangerous territory. Right. And the other side of it is, too, is, and if we do have those kind of people, what do you do with what them? What do we do with them or right. about them? As if people are a problem to be solved, mm-hmm. right? Not, not sentient beings to be respected. Right. Um, so this is about where you stand and, and come to find out these sorts of thoughts have been lurking around for millennia. Plato put them in the Republic for you right, right there. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, um, what happens when in this new city that they're building, they want the best people? Well, that means that when children are born and they're defective, you have to kill them. Mm-hmm. It's written right. right in the text. You right. have to kill them. You interested in killing children in the name of having better people? I don't know a single person who would think that that's anywhere near appropriate. And yet it's the underlying thought in Keynes. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, too, that's very interesting as well that I find um, is that, you know, naturally, and sometimes some of these folks that are talking in very utopian ways aren't necessarily saying this outright. But, of course, at the end of the day, the utopias, of course, don't design themselves. There has to be a certain class of people that uh, are going to think about it, shape it, of course. And uh, it it always seems to me that the people who are uh, saying, well, of course, objectively speaking, we need to have uh, an elite class of people designing this stuff. You know, they tend to obviously fancy themselves the kind yeah, of people no, that, that would be in that right. class, I, right? I have never heard somebody talk about the natural aristocracy who didn't also think he was a member of the <laughs> right. natural aristocracy. Exactly. Right. No, nobody ever talks about the natural aristocracy. And, and I'm not going to be in it. And yeah. I respect them deeply and will do as they say. Right. right? That's, that's not how this works. And I, I think you're right to point us to this idea of design. Right? Mm. They, they think they can design these things, right? And you want to talk about a curious task. That's right. exactly the quote right. that, that Hayek offered, right? The curious task of economics is to explain to people how little they understand about what they imagine they can design. I, mm-hmm. think, I think I got that right. About yeah. right, yeah. Um, and yeah, can you design a society? No. How do I know? Never happened. Right. Never not once. Societies are an emergent phenomenon. They just happen. It's to, to follow along with Hayek, a spontaneous order. And I think this is a very key part of the discussion, though, too, right? It's one thing, and in many ways, as you said, bad enough that people sit there around and think that they're going to be part of a natural aristocracy, uh, designing things, and that, you know, they, they sit around and theorize about what that would look like. Uh, the second part of that is when they actually go and try to implement, right? right? Because whether or not this can actually be implemented is a whole different question. And actually, in a way, it might be, one might argue that if a bunch of people just sat in a room and just left it at theory being fascists and Nazis. Maybe that would be better, but these people actually tend to go off in many different ways yep. uh, and actually implement this. And here's the fascinating thing. When you, and, and you know you get back to Plato, you hear that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, and it is. But I think all social thought is a footnote to Plato, hmm. too. And there's, there's a two-step process. 
in the Republic, where they're designing the city in speech. And uh, the first is they say, well, okay, we're going to need uh, basic stuff. We're going to need a guy to make shoes and a guy to make plows and a guy who farms and all the things that Greeks from 2,000 years ago would have thought that we need right this second. Right. And that's what we're going to need for a long time, of course. And, and, and that's right. <laughs> right. And, and they seem to think that um, when you get these people, they'll exchange with each other and they'll come to rough understandings about how best to live together. And there's justice. Justice is simple exchange. Wow, that's close to right. Mm. Hot damn, they're on to something there. And then what happens? If, if we stopped there, the book would have been two chapters long. Right. And we all know it's not two chapters long. It's a gigantic tome that you could drive a nail with. And, and a guy stands up and says, ah, but what about relishes? We haven't had relishes yet. And, and what he's asking is, what about the good life? And okay, there's a point there. But Socrates said, oh, you want relishes? Well, in that case, this city won't do. We have to start over. Mm. And then they build the next city. And the next city is one that has eugenics. It has no families. Really? You're going to take babies away from women? How well do you think that's going to work? Mm. Do you think a Greek from 2,000 years ago is going to put up with that? The normative standard of nature guided the ancient Greeks, especially the Athenians. Do you really think you can take a woman's child away and raise it in common? Of course not. That's idiotic. He's making another point. Mm. And there's all kinds of things in the Republic like that. And by the time you're done reading about this new city, you realize you don't want to live there. That's the point. Mm. If you want the perfect city, this is the one you're going to get. Right. And you don't want it. Mm. And I don't want it, and I know you don't either. Why? Because we're rational human beings. We don't want to live that way. But go back to that first one. And here's where it gets fascinating. And I'm, I write about this. I don't write about this fast enough. But I've been working. I've been chipping away at this one for years. If you stuck with that first city, wouldn't spontaneous order deliver you relishes over time? Mm. Wouldn't they simply emerge? Wouldn't you start with farmers and shoemakers and end up with opera, end up with architecture. Right. Of course you would, because that's how humanity develops over time. If you want utopia, take your hands off the wheel. Let people live. And what do you get? Well, you get Boston. Isn't that something? You get London, Paris. Take your pick, which is your favorite. Mm -hmm. My favorite is Istanbul. Boy, that's the... That's spontaneous order on steroids right mm. there. And it's wonderful. These places are all wonderful. And right. what's not wonderful? The republic that gets built at the table. Right. The city in speech that they actually build. Nobody would want to live there. Why? Because it's oppressive. It's the height of oppressive. Everything about it is oppressive. Mm -hmm. Do you really want John Maynard Keynes telling you how to live? Really? I hope you're the right kind of person. Or, or anyone, for that matter, if you I mean, really want to get down to I, it. I right? don't want to live in that world either. Right. I wouldn't be the right kind of person, I don't think. Mm. Um, but even if I were, I, I couldn't abide by it. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's high time everybody just admits as much and moves on. And when you start looking at these 
god-awful things that people say, it's always in service of the same idea, that we can control society right down to the marrow to the point where we can make better lives for everybody mm-hmm. who we deem acceptable. Right. You've got to be kidding me. Seriously? If you're still reading Keynes thinking, oh, he's got a point, you're the problem. Sorry, right? You're you're the problem because this should not be tolerated by decent human beings ever. And you start thinking about what this means politically and how we tend to view the world. And and most of us have this utopian urge, right? We do seem to think about politics this way when it, it's it's campaign season in the U.S. again right now, and these morons are emerging to run for the office of president of the United States of right. America. And of course, they all have, all have the answers to how to get there. They right? do. To utopia, they do. You they? know, kind of <laughs> kind of channeling my inner Elizabeth Warren. If I were running for the office, I would say, "Oh yes, we have a problem with Social Security, but I have a plan for that." Right. And, and lo and behold, I have a plan for everything. Because as we know in, in the U.S., it, it, the problem is people haven't planned enough. Of course, so I mean, it's just it's just if someone would actually that, come up with a plan, they would solve it. It's a technical <laughs> problem. Um, and because we still have it, decade after decade after decade means that who, our plans are just incorrect. Right. Not maybe that the problem itself is intractable. So we're, there's where we are. And, okay, we, we all have this utopian urge to think that with the right inputs, we could get better outputs. Mm-hmm. I understand that urge. I, I think it's dangerous, and I only thought it was dangerous after I studied it for 20 years. Right, so I don't expect people, upon first blush, to come to my conclusion. I don't think that's reasonable to expect. But I do think my conclusion is correct. Mm. Um, I don't know where that leaves us, but I take some hope because there's this other element of, of thought, I think, broadly speaking, in the West, not just in the States or in Canada. Right. We, um, we have the tendency to think in dystopic terms. Right. And, and why the hell would we do that if we're utopian in our orientation? And I think deep down inside, we all know that that probably is, if not incorrect, at least extraordinarily dangerous. And the danger that that kind of thinking brings, I think we're deeply, deeply sympathetic to it when we see it in something like 1984 by Orwell or right. Brave New World by Huxley. There are others, I think, but but these two are kind of the alpha and omega of dystopian right. fiction. Um, and and when you know when I was younger, when I was an adolescent, I guess, reading 1984 for the first time, I thought it nailed it. I thought, yes, this is exactly correct. Mm-hmm. This is how it's going to play out. We're going to become f- these creatures who are filmed and monitored and abused and... And I read Huxley, and I thought, no, this isn't right. This, I don't know hmm. where he's getting his ideas, but Orwell's got the best of this. But the, the longer I thought about it, the more I came to Huxley's point of view that we were simply going to be medicated out of caring. Right. And isn't that exactly what's happened? We'll elaborate on that further. How well, I mean, how many people do you know who aren't medicated to the gills? Mm. How many people do you know who don't have some kind of special accommodation for whatever mental problem they're having this week, right? How many people need a comfort animal even to, to walk out their doors? I don't know where people this week came from, but they're everywhere. I don't care if I'm offending you, and if you're that weak, you're offended. What can I tell you? But, but, but it seems to be underlying that kind of 
thing that you're raising though is the fact that perhaps that the in your mind that all this stuff is not even addressing the, an underlying problem perhaps it's no. addressing just you know trying to move people away from oh. and i don't even want to superficially say oh facing something it's just like no don't think about society don't think, don't think about the issues just go over there and kind of like yeah. just take your cookie and go away i that's think that's a, the bigger yeah, problem. that's exactly yeah. right this is wallpaper that mm-hmm. we put onto problems right and, right and you know if you read huxley seriously first problems are created and then they're solved. And how are they solved? Medicate the hell out of everybody mm-hmm. and just be done with it. They won't ask a lot of questions if they're medicated. And it's kind of a, a new 21st century version of bread and circus. Well, many are arguing that, you know, or to some degrees, maybe not in these types of words, but even if you're not, for example, officially uh, pharmaceutically medicated, that, you know, the cultural problem of sort of echo chambers and That's plugging right. yourself into certain media and certain channels or certain, and just like, feeding your head with that same kind of stuff is almost a version of yeah. self-medicating too. I mean, if you think there's problems with the world, instead of studying them, you just listen to your favorite pundit over and over. I mean, that's kind of a form of anything, wallpapering and medicating too, wouldn't you say? Anything that releases the endorphins would qualify as this sort of thing. Right. And it's a dangerous sort of thing. And if, if you look at where we've gotten, the society we have is largely decent. I think it, it's, it's, we're rich, broadly, broadly speaking. We're happy broadly speaking and yet we do have real problems and Mm -hmm. and we refuse to face them and as you refuse to face them over not just years but generations they get much much worse and you know i'm on record as saying i I do believe the um the united states economy and monetary system will collapse one day under its own weight Mm. because how the hell could it not you should use your head for god's sake of course that's going to happen you can't spend more than you have year after year after year and then start minting trillion-dollar platinum. Why does it have to be platinum? Nobody fucking knows. Uh, <laughs> minting trillion-dollar platinum coins, and that will somehow make it all better. That's not going to make it all better. It's going to crash the entire system. See also Venezuela, mm. right? Well, well, I mean, just they're running out of tools, and a lot of these, a lot of these designers, if look at central banking or anything like that, right? It's a good example. I mean, you probably uh, are, are old enough to remember, right? Yeah, we'll do it. You're probably old enough to remember a time where, you know, when we're talking about interest rates, we're talking about margins between six and four yeah. percent, and so on. Now we're screwing around with one and a quarter percent. Yeah. The time seems to be ticking on all these tools that these designers say they have for us. That's to solve right. Problems, right? That's right. And and therein lies the real problem, right? We're, we're living in a an incredibly wealthy pretty well functioning society and yet we've got real problems that we refuse to address and those problems will literally be our undoing and we're all right now asleep at the switch because it's just more comfortable and i'll hold us there that's an excellent place to take a break everyone you're listening to curious task i'm speaking with james harrigan today The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pajarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies.
Welcome back, everyone. Listen to the Curious Task. I'm speaking James Harrigan today. James, I think the first half was great. We really got into your, your thinking on what the problem is with utopian thinking and so on and so forth. Jumping right back in here, though, we were talking about dystopian thinking. Yeah. And then we got into a bunch of other things there. But I want to bring us back to that for just a second, just to be clear on a point. So do you think dystopian thinking is just as problematic as, as utopian thinking then? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I would rather people think... More broadly speaking, I would rather people think in dystopian terms, right? Because hmm. it keeps them suspicious. It it keeps them on the lookout for how they might be being manipulated. And I don't think people do this nearly enough, right? We've lost all suspicion in government. And, and I think that's dangerous. I don't think it's necessarily a problem in the immediate sense, right? If, if government isn't abusing you wholesale, you're probably okay. And, and we're in better shape here in, in North America, say, than a lot of other countries in the world. And, right. and I think you have to admit that. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not, we're not well, at the end of days right now. Right. Right? But I think it does everybody well to remember that government is to be feared. And, and that's the thing that they forget. Um, government is to be feared for a bunch of perfectly good reasons. And when you start remembering that, mm-hmm. you can you can edit your behaviors in such a way mm-hmm. to reflect reality in a way that maybe your behaviors are not reflecting reality right this second. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it's the Thomas Paine quote, right? That, that essentially comes down to why are we supposed to be suspicious? I think it was him who was the, you know, at its best, it's a necessary evil. And at its worst, it's an unbearable. One, that's right? right. And at its best, Paine was absolutely right. It is a necessary, it's necessary. I'm, I am not uh, an anarchist. Mm-hmm. It is a necessary evil. It's both of those things. So the best hope that you can have is to limit its scope. Keep it where it needs to be and allow nothing. And you more. don't get that by getting rid of suspicion entirely. No, you point. don't. You, you have to be deeply, deeply suspicious of these things. Does that make people like me um, appear to be crazy? Mm-hmm. He, yeah. I Sure. People call me crazy all the sure, time. Some people, yeah. I'll, t- I'll take that bullet. That's okay. Because mm-hmm. um, somebody has to be, you know, in, in the Socratic language, the gadfly here. Somebody has to remind you that this is not, the government is not your friend, mm. right? The, the government is your partner, and it's a good partner a little bit of the time. Right, right. Um, and, you know, another thing that Payne, and I know you're a, a big fan of Payne. I, I am, am. I am too. Another thing that he talked about, and, and something that, gets forgotten exactly as we walk down this road. He, he said people have confounded and, and conflated society and government. Mm-hmm. And society and government are not the same thing. Society is a beautiful thing. It's where people come together to deal with each other quite voluntarily. Um, they help each other solve problems. They, they are neighbors. Mm-hmm. Government is not that. Mm-hmm. And when people think that society and government are the same thing, look at the power they give to government. Right. And there's another problem, right? You, you have to be clear-minded in your thinking. You've got to be sober in your thinking. The government is not your friend. The government is not society. Mm. Not at all. Right. So would I prefer if people were a little more pessimistic in their thinking? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I would. So, so on that note, then you know, dystopian thinking, and and I agree with you. I think like you know, if if you have a bunch of people that are on the one hand going to sit in a room and think about a utopia, I actually do want other people thinking of dystopia, right? Because it says okay, because then it brings in the train of thought, like how do we get to dystopia? And it's good that people think through that. But on the other hand, some of the utopian thinkers seem to use dystopia as a uh, as a scare tactic sure. to scare people into their well, it is scary, of, right? Yeah, believing in their utopia, right? So you don't want this type of disaster. So, of course, but it's very interesting, right? They don't talk about practical solutions or making things better at the margin or, you know, all that kind of stuff they talk about. So you don't want this utopia, so come to my utopia. Yeah, where I think ev- that's the problem. Where everything will be wonderful. The right. water is warm and the air is clean and you don't even have to have a job. Mm-hmm. Well, look, li- human life is hard. That's the nature of human life. It's way less hard now than it once was. Absolutely. Thank God. God, mm-hmm. right? Because our ancestors worked like dogs. Mm-hmm. And because they did, we, we stand on their shoulders right. and have a much better well, life. A lot of them would have a good laugh at the fact we can just sit here and have this conversation that, to that's go, right. go plow something right that, now, that's right? right. So. And, and, you know, later today, not, not to take things out of order for you, but you're going to get to talk to my daughter, mm-hmm. right? And, and if the world works the way I, I hope it does, she gets to stand on my shoulders. Right. And she'll maybe have children, maybe who will stand on her shoulders, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, right? So, okay, are you looking for a better life? Improvement on the margins, like mm-hmm. you just said. Well, that's exactly what you should be looking for, because that's best-case scenario. Mm-hmm. Everything else is not a best-case scenario. And if you decide what you want is a wholesale change, a revolution in the truest form of the word revolution, right? Mm-hmm. A wholesale change of society and politics, which is the Marxian version of revolution, right? As opposed to the American revolution, Mm -hmm. which was a very conservative affair. Mm -hmm. It didn't seek to change society at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, if you want that Marxian revolution, look at what you're going to have to do to get it. I mean, what Lenin said, if you want, if you want an omelet, you got to crack a couple of eggs, right? That's a nice way of saying that Keynes fella has a point. Let's kill all these people that we Mm -hmm. think are are somehow not quite as good as the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you look with that wholesale revolution, that's what you find. Mm-hmm. Is that what you want? Right. Is that what anybody wants? Because if you do, you've just admitted to being a murderer. Mm-hmm. That's your goal. Right. Uh, that's not going to do. So, yeah, give me, give me pessimists any day of the week because the damage that optimists have done over the years, is, it's indescribable. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people have these optimists killed? And by the time you, 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 can, you can actually get a, a rough answer to that question, right? When, by the time you get through Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, you're approaching 100 million human beings, mm-hmm. all in the name of a purity so we can have utopias. And I think one thing that's um, very key to note about, you know, you've named some figures, for example, so just... The, that, I, um, at least, and you tell me if you agree with this, I find that sometimes, unfortunately, the way history is taught and the way certain, um, when we're thinking about people who've had utopian thoughts, you know, oftentimes they're either caricatured and so on and so forth. But I think one thing that's like very interesting to note is these people are heroes in their own story. That's right. They're not Marvel Comics villains. No, that's you right. know, and unfortunately people have, when they either taught history or think about history or think about whatever, the United States on the world stage, whatever, there's this Marvel Comics reality, but it's not good versus evil. You talk to Stalin, you talk to, you go to the, the depths of the Nazi diaries and you find people that think they're on a noble mission to do good. Of course they did. Why else would they have done it? Right. And I think, but I think 
think the thing is that some people, it sounds like an obvious point, and me and you were talking about it, but I think a lot of people miss that, you know? They're, these aren't just, you know, for example, goose-stepping Nazis that are Marvel <laughs> Comics villains. These well, are people that thought they were doing the right thing. Well, and, and here's the thing. When, when we assess all of this in the cold light of day, I take one look at it and dismiss it out of hand as what it is, pure evil. It's pure evil. But then we've got another group of people, a very large group, who say, yeah, they had some evil tendencies, but they got the inputs wrong. Right. What, what we really need to do is adjust the inputs. Right. Kiss my ass. Mm. Look, at what, look at what you're saying. You've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we get day after day after day. And we get it from people like college professors who should know better who teach young people that these people had a point. They just went a little too far and we should have adjusted this way instead of that way. I don't think you can make an excuse for Stalin Mm -hmm. or Mao. Thankfully, not a lot of people try to make an excuse for Hitler and we label them neo-Nazis and treat them the way we should. Um, But the communists get a free pass no matter how many tens of millions of people they kill. And, you know, we were talking about politicians before, though, too, and, and to a lesser degree, maybe we're not talking about Stalinism and communism there. But 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 even then, like you said, like it's the same type of mentality, right? Oh, that, that hasn't worked for some decades. Here we go. We just change the inputs, change the plan. Well, make it work adjust, this time. Adjust this percentage. And, uh, you, uh, maybe another big de- problem in the United States specifically, uh, make this new department with this <laughs> sure, acronym, of right? Course. So, of course. And, and why wouldn't you do that? That's right. what we always do. We never ask if it works. Right. I mean, Homeland Security. Are, I was supposed to say do, that, actually. Do you, really, do you really feel safer? They confiscated my peanut butter not too long ago. The world can rest. Well, well thank God. The world can rest. We, we can't have that going around. I found out that peanut butter, in their estimation, is a liquid because it conforms to the shape of the container it is in. Well, there you go. Logic for, <laughs> for the win. Um, you start to wonder uh, about... The sanity of people. And, and really what you're seeing is a form of hubris, not to get back and maybe conclude with this idea from the Greeks yet again. Um, it, it's a form of hubris. They're, what they're really saying is people before us didn't know what we know. Mm. Therefore, with our better education and our better base of knowledge and our better experience, this time we'll get it right. And we won't just happen to kill 300 million people. Right. And I ask the simple question, where is your evidence? Show me. Show me the evidence that this will ever work. And it's a very basic thing I'm asking for. It should be everywhere if this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And it's nowhere. It's a utopia. Nowhere. No no place. And I'm going to ask one final question to to bring us, I think it will serve as the last swing of the conversation at least. If you were to throw a bone at utopias and topian thinking, though, what would that bone be? Uh, you know, is there any benefit or importance to this type of thinking? I don't mean like we have, I don't, and I want to be very clear here. I don't mean someone says, I'm not saying James, uh, describe one utopia I think we head towards. I more mean, sure. is there is there room for idealistic thinking and people being reasonable to get there, but they still accept you can't get, like, you know, you know I what do. I'm trying to say. I know exactly what you're asking, and I think it's a reasonable question you ask. And the answer is yes, there is a place for it. Um, There is a reason why I still ask young people to read Plato's Republic. If it were only dangerous, I wouldn't ask them to read it, Mm. right? But but there's a thing there that's very, very important, maybe a couple. Uh, The the first thing is, is obviously looking for what is accomplishable 
what what can you hope to accomplish? Mm-hmm. There are things. Look, human beings can accomplish great things together. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I know I've made it sound like there's nothing but problems at the end of the road. Actually, at the end of 99% of the roads, there's nothing but success. Right. So, okay, how far down those roads can we get? And then at what point does it become dangerous? And, and that point is something we need to know. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that, you know, to err on the side of caution, we need to stop well shy of that point. Right. But we have to actually know that point in order to make any conclusion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's worth it, I think. And I think it's also worth it... Um, for people, uh, young people especially, but everybody, to be able to sit around and think about the limitations of human interaction, right? What is it that we can hope to achieve by fiat, by just declaring that people will do and behave in certain ways mm-hmm. um, versus leaving people be to, to, to live how they see fit, what they think is most appropriate, what they think will bring them their, their most deepest happiness. And I think that's an important thing to think through. And I think a basic respect for other human beings requires us to think through that. So there are good benefits down this road. There are also real dangers. And knowing the difference is probably the first order of business. And I didn't realize we'd get there. I was asking the question, but I guess that sort of brings us full circle to you. So you'd have to know when to stop. Well, I guess that's after the first two chapters. That's right, after the first two chapters. <laughs> so when you, when you say you're going to finish that essay, I'd like to read it. One of these days. <laughs> Fair One of these days. And um, so with, with that, I'm, I'm going to move us to a formal wrap-up here, James. I mean, we have talked about a lot. We packed a lot in those minutes we spent together. As you know, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to put a finer point on our exploration of the question and bring everything full circle. So let me ask you the official last question then. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what's wrong with utopias? In other words, if you want someone listening to us here to come away with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, mm-hmm. what would that be? That designing human life is is not the effective way to go. and it, Because those people, the people who would design human life, human lives, they are looking for an effective answer, but it's not an effective answer. It's a terrible answer. What is an effective answer? What what yields the best outcomes? And what yields the best outcomes is human freedom. Letting people live the way they think they should or they think they want to, as long as they bring no harm to their to their neighbors. And that's, you know, the, the important part. Be free, harm no one. Nice and simple, right? And it, it's so simple, as a matter of fact, that the people who are smart enough to design human societies are very suspicious of it. They think that it has to be way more complicated than that. But everything you do to complicate that ends up harming others. Every single thing. So be very careful when you decide to add things to that laundry list of controls that you're going to put on human society. Because they're all very dangerous. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So, James Harrigan, thank you very much for joining me again on The Curious Task. Thank you. Always, always a pleasure to hang out with you guys. Always. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.